0: This has been a school year like no other. When the coronavirus pandemic hit, schools were forced to switch to remote learning. But the reviews on how that's gone over the last few months are mixed, to say the least. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. The organization Teaching Matters has been helping schools in some of New York City's poorest districts navigate the challenges of having to quickly pivot to online learning, challenges the nonprofit expects to continue into the next school year. Lynette Westaferro is CEO of Teaching Matters. I recently talked with her about her organizations work in helping teachers switch from brick and mortar classrooms to teaching online. Lynette, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So what is Teaching Matters? Give us the background.
1: So Teaching Matters is a nonprofit that is focused on ensuring that all kids have equitable access to great teaching, especially kids who are living in sort of underserved and under-resourced communities.
0: How does it work?
1: Our primary focus is to bring in highly skilled educators and coaches who can partner with public schools um, many in many situations uh, schools in in urban communities often get the newest teachers um, and and teachers that require that uh, require more more training because they are sort of doing their first teaching gig in in um, in the city and so what we do is partner with schools to identify teachers that need additional skill sets to be able to get up to, to really serve kids and, and coach those teachers directly online and um, across the city.
0: What would you say are the most important skills that you look for in helping these schools?
1: Number one skill is that people have a true understanding of the context of, of urban schools, that they have experience and leadership experiences in urban schools. That they understand the uh, the context uh, that 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 our schools and our children and our families work in, um, and that they bring that, and that they can bring sort of a, a more culturally responsive lens to the work that they do. Um, the other critical piece is that they're experts in their in their field; that they have demonstrated in their own classrooms and in coaching other teachers that they can really make an impact on teacher effectiveness and kids' outcomes.
0: Can you talk to me a bit about the needs of urban schools compared to schools in the more affluent suburbs, for instance?
1: There's many and the, 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 the needs come from a mix of uh, the context of the communities that, that the underserved communities that the schools are in. Um, so, for example, they often have kids coming coming to them with a range of, of, of challenges, but more potentially more trauma uh, because of poverty. Uh, the, uh, the other issue is that sometimes skilled and experienced teachers leave uh, s- schools or, or teachers don't go. Many teachers may not go teach in urban schools. And so in those situations, they don't always have the same choices of like, who they can actually bring in in the first place. Um, and, and so there often are vacancies in these schools. They don't have the, the same staff. Um, and it, it's harder for them to staff their school. So the key is, is, is um, going, at every school we go into, you'll find people who are really amazing and able to connect with the kids and know the work. And then you're partnering with them to really spread those skills across the school.
0: How do you typically recruit?
1: Well, frankly, we recruit from everywhere and anywhere. Um, we have a lot of folks that are, are, have been working in charter schools and have decided they want to bring that skill set into the traditional public schools. And want, um, there are, in some of the very high-performing charters, there are practices that uh, can, can be, that can inform some of the work that we do in public schools. Um, they, for one, they've often seen kids succeeding at high levels. Uh, kids of color, and so they bring that use. Uh, they bring that that expectation with them. They also uh, have often a really strong affinity about the use of data. Uh, some of those practices are 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 practiced um, kind of in the charters a little more than they ha- than they ha- than they have been in the public schools, or at least consistently as a norm across the building. So that's one of the places. The other place that we're recruiting is, frankly. Um, from all over. I mean, we have people have come to New York to work in our organization.
0: And are you working across grade levels, K through 12?
1: So we support uh, schools from, from K to 12 and, and now going to be working in pre-K as well um, and, uh, across all subject areas and with a particular focus on supporting um, teachers that are supporting English language learners and, and on special needs.
0: What has been your organization's involvement in New York City Public Schools' transition to online learning?
1: Wow. So, so, you know, our work is in schools. Our folks work side by side with teachers every day. So when, when COVID was coming, I actually, and before they closed the schools, uh, we, I pulled everybody out and uh, I had a, you know, team of 50 and we said, and so we looked at what the challenges were gonna be as the schools closed and as the teachers had to overnight switch into teaching with technology and teaching remotely. And what we saw was there was a huge amount of work in taking the lessons that they were supposed to teach but transitioning them so that they were student facing, which means that they're visual, they have video, they, um, they're set for kids to kind of work more independently. And so we just started churning them out. Uh, We developed uh, seven weeks of uh, curriculum, releasing week by week from kindergarten through eighth grade across every subject area, including wellness, arts, and the whole nine yards. And then we just released it for free week after week um, to the teachers to give them kind of a breath so they could learn how to, to teach this way before also having to create all that digital curriculum. The work was really, it was. I keep saying this, every teacher in the last six months was a first-year teacher because the learning curve is that steep.
0: What made it that steep? What were the biggest challenges, would you say?
1: So there's, there's a number. Number one was the technology. And it didn't matter if this teacher had used technology before. Um, first of all, many are not teaching with technology, but the ways in which we had to use technology were not the ways that most of us interact on a day-to-day basis. I think everyone can identify with, if they're working remotely, the skills they may have had to learn in the last few months. Now I want you to imagine learning those skills, not just to talk to another person, but to manage a classroom of 30 students. Just put that, so let that sink in for a second. It was a huge learning curve. So there's the technology, there's the pet, there's the how do you teach in a remote environment? How do you meet with small groups? How do you structure kind of live discussion? Um, how do you create content and how do you manage the learning? how do you assess the children in a virtual remote where you can't necessarily see the kids all the time you have to go from work they're turning in um, or or find other ways to assess their work so there there I can't tell you, I mean there's there's a there's such a learning curve of, of various pieces but um, and we've actually put together a, a, a competency list that we have built a whole series of, of free webinars on our website now that teachers can come to at and, and kind of and learn online.
0: If you had to tell a teacher, Lynette, if you at least do this, is there something that you would tell them? Beyond anything else, if you at least do this, this will help.
1: If you at least do this. So one thing I think that you have to at least do with kids who are you know especially the kids that are, are that we're in the schools that we serve you you have to make a, a connection with them like really check in on them and, and 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 have them connect to this other adult that's not in the that's not just in, not in the house this connection this personal connection that some kids have been able to make with their teachers during this incredibly stressful and traumatic time for lots of children I think that's been really important.
0: Would you say there's a particular subject matter that has been harder to transition to online?
1: I think every one of these subject areas has their challenges. So I, I I'm not I'm I, I don't think so. I'm not I, I think I think every single um, subject area has 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 different challenges. When you're used to being able to get in front of a child and explain something um, and and you've suddenly got to make everything visual. Um, you know, math, math can be a little bit difficult because, you know, you have to create the equations that that's a specific, that's hard, but that's, that's also quite solvable. No, I'm not going to say there's one subject that's harder than the other. What is harder, however, though, is um, the kids who are learning English. So English language, you know, we call them ENL, and um, and also kids who are special ed, special needs, they have all different kinds of learning differences. And, and, and interestingly, there are some kids who are thriving online that I would even characterize as having learning differences. Um, but for many of those kids, this would be really, this is a, this is a more challenging situation.
0: Yeah, let's um, talk about that. Let's talk about the impact on kids and the challenges that they themselves face in making that transition.
1: So I think for children, um, the, one of the biggest challenges is just the organization of it all. Um, and that is if a teacher is very skilled and lo- knows how to use the technology well to really structure the learning, um, that actually can be solved uh, just through the technology and how, how it's managed. Mm-hmm. But for, for kids, the wor- it's working independently. Um, it's really important job skills, actually, right? Like taking, taking ownership of your own learning. Um, more independence, persevering through without someone sitting right next to you. And a lot of our kids do not necessarily have a parent sitting right next to them. I think that independent skills, um, those are some of the real challenges for kids.
0: What about the challenges for parents? Because we know this has been a very challenging time for parents with online learning.
1: The, you know that so many challenges for parents and they range the gamut if you're you know you could be an essential worker and you're not even able to be there right and the kids may be going to you know you, you ha, ha, you're you're not even there to support your kid or able to support your kids remote learning then there's the parents that are managing really intense jobs and having to go back and forth between their jobs and supporting their kids you know in online you um, and then I, I I think those are the primary. And it, it, this, from from parents that are supporting their kids in remote learning, the thing I've heard that is most challenging has been when schools kind of haven't been organized across the building around how the kids are going to receive the information, how to turn assignments in, coordinating their classes so that kids have similar expectations across the building. For those parents, this has been a real struggle because they're not just managing kids' remote learning in one classroom. They're sort of having to manage it across six different teachers, doing it in different ways. And I've heard a lot of, and I think that's quite fixable if uh, we can partner with this. You can partner with the school and and help them to really think about the norms of what the expectations are across teachers and coordinate through teacher teams so that, that there's consistency in the
0: delivery. Are you noticing that there's more teacher-parent interaction than there was during normal circumstances?
1: You know, I think it's very mixed. So I think in some cases, absolutely. I think a lot of parents have actually been able to see the teachers teaching their students. They Teachers that have done live instruction, um, the parents have been able to observe. Um, you know, in other cases... Uh, it, I have to say it depends. In my own experience, my son won't let me go near him in online <laughs> school. <laughs> I have I haven't had one picture of it because I'm fortunate to have a son who's taking control of it. Is is he's one of those kids that I think actually has enjoyed remote learning just as much, if not even a little bit more, than school um, because he really uh, the way it's the way kids have uh, can work independently. Uh, but for kids that um, you know, have needed their parents, and are working. Like their parents are helping them, and they're working, um, getting support from their parents. I think parents are getting a really super deep dive look into what teachers do, and I think parents have become super appreciative uh, where those teachers are really meeting their kids' needs. Now they really see the challenges that sometimes teachers
0: face. I wonder if you have any advice for the parent of a child. Who simply has not gotten motivated with online learning? I've heard stories about that—that that kids just simply can't adapt to it. It's challenging for them.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, there, there, I have heard plenty of stories of that. And I think my question there would be: is, is, you know, the why? Is it because what the kind, the experience they're having online hasn't been engaging to them? Engagement is a real, a real uh, challenge that. Educators really started to see as we got to the later months of remote learning. You know, in the beginning, there was sort of a newness to it, but over time, this pure remote style learning. For some, you know, kids and families, it just, they, everybody got tired. I think teachers got tired. I think the kids got tired. Um, you know, we believe in, in technology-driven learning, but this is not how it's supposed to be. So I do think that there's, there's a weariness around the, whole, around the whole thing. And then there's honestly, you know, for, for, some, for many kids, the again, it's the organization and management of it and doing it on your own. That just, just that doesn't work for, for some kids. For, you know, ironically, for other kids, it's, it's a godsend. There are some kids in every classroom that actually, I think, are thriving absent the social part of the school uh, for, re, for different reasons. They may have some of their own issues in terms of interacting with other kids. They may have been bullied. So We have a small group of kids that are thriving online. And I think there's a, a larger group that just can't wait back to school. And there's a group that just really has found it completely undoable.
0: What supports did you find that urban high poverty school teachers needed most to switch to online learning?
1: Initially, it was the content. So teach, like I said, Teaching Matters developed seven weeks of content, and we released it each week. We've, we're actually repackaging that content now so teachers can download this, these activities. And, um, and so the having student facing content when you've been teaching in a classroom to turn it all digital and to have it so that your kids can access it and it's engaging that is really time intensive to develop and build and there's lots of digital content out there but it's not in the form at the form of how a teacher might t- teach it th- teach it directly and that's a little bit hard to explain but this is not where you go online and just do software this is the materials that you need to you know video and And interactive writing activities and, um, you know, group activities where you bring the kids together. Creating all that content was a huge and heavy lift for our teachers.
0: You referenced this a little bit, but I want you to get into it a little bit more detail, if you will, about how you adapted your teaching to the needs of public school students who are special needs homeless and or new to the English language.
1: So I have a whole team that specializes in that, and I wish they were on here to speak to it. And I just want to say that in a, if, you, if you go to Teaching Matters' website, you will see uh, webinars that go into depth on the strategies that you can take. But the key is a few things. One is how you're breaking things down. How are you making things visual, you know, so that kids can understand them, whether it's you're using images, not text, how are you creating things that kids can listen to over and over again? So, for example, um, I, I instead of um, type, writing something up, I might have recorded myself. And in this environment, the kids can listen to it over and over. There's all sorts of strategies. And, again, if you're interested in the topic for English language learners and, 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 and special needs populations, go to our website. There are links to webinars that you can now watch and learn your, on your own.
0: Are you confident that most students in New York City have all that they need to be able to learn at home right now?
1: No, I'm not. I, I know that they've made a huge effort, the Department of Education, to get technology out to families and 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 the internet out to families. Um, those internet contracts are running out at the end at the end of the month, and I don't know the plan to extend them. I'm sure something would be put in place. Um, there are families that are sharing computers. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stories about the fact that. Families might have two computers and they've got four kids. So no, we don't have what we need because we don't have a policy in, this, in, in, our, in our state that school comes with internet access and a, tech, and a, and a computer. And, and, and without that, remote learning is a little bit of a haves and haves not situation, as, as hard as people tried very quickly to make that not the case.
0: Let's talk about the fall, when children return to school in the fall. What will be the magnitude of loss of the youngest learners, K through 12? Because I understand that for that group, remote learning has been incredibly challenging and in many cases of limited value.
1: You're right to point out that the younger students, K to 2, is where there's a lot of fear because those are the critical years to learn mastery of reading. And um, falling behind in those years, as research has shown, has, has a lot of catch up. Um, you know, when they looked at uh, New Orleans uh, after the after the uh, the, the, uh, the hurricanes, and the kids had been out of school, the range of learning loss was all over the map, upwards of two years in some cases. So the re- the uh, and, and re- range from two years to you know kids that were a few months. The b- because of the trauma as well. The 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 research that is done by NWA, they've done some predictive statistics on it. And you know, over the summer, it's typical to see a few months learning loss. That's typical. So we're looking, especially in mathematics, concerns that we could be looking at double and triple that.
0: Wow, that's pretty significant.
1: It's it's gonna be the challenge for the next, I believe, two years is is really dealing with the gaps and continuing to have kids learn, but dealing with the fact that there are going to be some critical gaps because they've, in some cases, they've missed you know, significant school. Um, you know, I've also, I want to say, I've, I've had conversations with parents that have just been loving the online learning and they don't feel this gap at all. So again, that's just going to speak to the variety of experiences and why it's going to be so important to be able to assess kids early, figure out kind of where they are and and be uh, we're going to have to put some resources into really targeting those kids and targeting those gap areas and and create schools so that we can actually meet kids at their
0: level. Yeah, um, that's the question, Lynette. How do you make up for those losses? What steps need to be taken?
1: You know, I think that again, I think we should look to some of the practices that was done that were done in New Orleans. Like, there may need to be flexibility where kids are placed, kind of at their at their level and not necessarily at their at their age. That's kind of extreme. I think we're going to have to do better use of intervention services if we have kids that are really multiple years behind or multiple you know they were already behind and now they've been thrown further behind. We need um, reading intervention services. Uh, I also think that classrooms are just kind of have to be more vigilant around kind of not that heavy duty testing but just Formative assessments and really checking in where kids are and grouping kids getting creative about using multiple teachers to target uh, Specific skill gaps amongst different groups of kids
0: Of course, you don't have a crystal ball in that but what do you think the fall might look like for students? Will they be returning to school as usual? What might that look like? What do we know at this stage?
1: Well, I think the chancellor, I think, himself had said a uh, few weeks ago that it was, a, you know, 50-50 that we would start in the fall, you know, all, you know, kids in school. I think we're going to be in some form of blended, structured environment, which means that um, we'll be socially distanced in school, we'll, which means that there won't be enough space for the kids to be there five days a week. So there'll be some part of their learning that's remote and some part of their learning that is in school, I think that's that's a high possibility. Um, I think when, but there are some definites, and if there are any teachers listening out there, um, I think you know what those definites are. What you've learned in organizing your instruction for online and through technology, you must continue. You should prepare all your lessons over the summer so that they can be delivered this way. You should work, we should work on making these projects engaging, um, and make them so that ki- so that uh, kids are involved in inquiry and projects and use the technology just to organize and structure that. It's really powerful for that. It works even better in the classroom. We have to get ourselves ready for a whole bunch of scenarios where we may be partially remote. We might have a second wave and all of a sudden be fully remote, but we've got to get ready for the fact that, that this blended learning and, and teaching with technology is here to stay for some time.
0: How can an educator make sure that their students are doing okay, if you will? You know, it's one thing when you see a student day in and day out, you can get a sense of their mental health, their mental well-being. But in this situation, how can you make sure that is okay?
1: I've seen, uh, and, and I'd love if again, come watch some of the webinars on our websites because we've got some strategies around Uh, webinars on on how how to kind of create a warm culture in your classroom and so we have teachers that that check do morning check-ins they just do them they check in with their kids every morning they do a little check on on how people are feeling they there's one where they have the kids put a smiley face a sad face depending on how they're feeling and they just check in you know and uh, I mean I'm running my own organization from home and we have a 10-minute morning meeting every single morning and it's a check-in like you know just we're all here. Let's just connect with each other and let's kind of see how we're all doing. And that is truly important right now.
0: Lynette, what's your advice for teachers on how best to address what's happening right now? The challenges that we're seeing this nation go through, the unrest that we're seeing over the death of George Floyd, how do we address these issues of racism?
1: So before COVID, Teaching Matters was partnering with schools to really uh, focus on sort of, uh, you know, practices that we call culturally responsive um, in that range and that that encompasses a whole series of practices which I think some of them are old and some of them are new um, one of one critical piece is that for teachers to recognize and understand their own biases in their instruction and they in themselves to teach kids around um, the impact of bias and and systemic racism and um, so we were doing that work before and I think that what's going on now It's just further example of why those conversations matter. I actually think the conversations that started before COVID and now have been, are being accelerated by the tragedies that we've, we've seen, which are just horrendous. I'm here. I'm, I think this conversation is starting to resonate with a lot more people that it may not have in the past. And so I think people are more open now to see uh, if we don't deal with systemic racism in our in our in our country in our institutions, um, then th- this is where we're going to be. We've got it. We've got to make change.
0: Can you talk to me a little bit more about the programs that you have in place related to cultural responsiveness?
1: Yeah. So we have it's we we have a it's it, it's it's actually sort of a, we call it a competency based model. There are different aspects mm-hmm. of examining your structure. There's, um, one is about, you know, knowing yourself and, and really getting and recognizing your own bias. This idea that you're a racist or not a racist is nonsense. It's really getting, we're in a system that we were all sort of swimming in the same water. And so it's really learning how to recognize your own biases and to, to explore how they might be affecting yourself as in your teaching. Then there's a whole piece with the students. And it's, it's, way, it's a piece about like ways in which you were teaching practices uh, can be um, how can you alter some of your teaching practices to make sure uh, in many ways one that you are empowering children's voices in the learning that you're that you are um, in how what you're learning you're rec- you're, you're not teaching something that when you look at what you're teaching, you realize that it has no connection to the students in front of you. You look at the students in front of you and you understand who their history is, and you figure out the ways to connect it to what you're learning or make it center in what you're learning as appropriate. I always say that progressive education always had a lot of the value systems of, of, of making sure that kids' voices were, were critical to the learning process. Kids learn by constructing learning. They don't just learn through memorization. And so for kids to really construct, they have to build on what they know. So if you can tap into kids' experiences um, from, from their, their cultural experiences, their their uh, and they're very different experiences, because one thing I think we've learned across the board is that people have very, very different experiences of, this, of similar situations, right? And um, the more that we are able to create a classroom, and this, I know this sounds soft, but the reality is, is there very specific hard techniques to it. How do you create a a classroom where every child actually experiences a true sense of belonging, not just to the room, but to what they're learning? And that does require some reorientation of the curriculum. You know, it requires that kids learn about uh, people that look like them. It requires that they are taught Sometimes by people that look like them, it's it requires that they learn a history that uh, does not constantly t- teach them uh, as as a as a disadvantaged member, but but identifies the ways in which they in the accomplishments that they have gone through. Again, these were things that we were we were doing. I think in the past, I'll say that as sometimes people disagree with me, but I do think the thing that was not done enough was for teachers, especially white teachers, to really. Get in touch with the, their own biases and, and make sure that they included kids' voices in understanding what was really resonating because you have blind spots. And so you have to engage with your kids to really understand what, 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 what resonates and what they're learning.
0: What resources are out there for teachers to follow that path to make sure that they're doing things like that?
1: There's a, there's a whole a whole bunch of them actually, and I we're about to post uh, just by the time the, your listeners hear this, we're putting a whole series of resources in relationship to the events that are going on now that teachers can use to help it, to explain and talk to kids and to to for kids to take action. So one challenge I think is that the kind of common curricula that gets put out needs to be modified. And so um, I I would just, what I would suggest is if you want to check out teachingmatters.org's website, we put out a whole series of resources that people can take a look
0: at. Lynette, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Lynette Cuestaferro is CEO of Teaching Matters. Once again, more info can be found at teachingmatters.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. I'm George Boldarkey. Thanks so much for listening.